Hello, and welcome to a special two-part episode of Sundowners. I'm Sarah Roving, the Society of Architectural Historians 2017 H. Allen Brooks Traveling Fellow. This part is called Listening to the Industrial Past. If you haven't yet heard part one, Sounding Industrial Heritage, I suggest you go back and do so now. Once again, I'm joined by my spouse and sometimes traveling companion, John Golden. Hi, John. Hey, Sarah. It's good to be back. In this second part, we'll be talking about the ways in which cultural conceptions of industrial sound have changed over time, and how, as contemporary listeners, we can better understand industrial heritage by learning to listen with a contextual awareness of the past. We'll also talk about the ways in which curators and museum professionals can use sound at industrial heritage sites to help audiences experience these sites in new and unfamiliar ways. So let's jump right in. In the previous episode, we talked about how, within the field of sound studies, some cultural and social historians critique the initial formulation of what we call a soundscape. These historians argued that a soundscape should include both the culture of listening and understanding, as well as the actual sounds themselves. As a refresher, scholar Alan Corbin defines a soundscape as simultaneously a physical environment and a way of perceiving that environment. It is both a world and a culture constructed to make sense of that world. So let's break that definition down into two parts and address each in turn. First, the environment or the sounds themselves. And second, the way in which we as listeners understand and make sense of that environment. The whir of a motor, the whistle of a train, the clacking of a loom, the shudder of a lift pulling up raw ore from deep within a mine. These are the sounds that we typically associate with the Industrial Revolution. Today, we live in a built environment where sound is heavily engineered. Acoustical designers can use advanced materials and spatial forms to shape the soundscapes of the buildings where we live, work, and play. But industrial sounds, such as those I just mentioned, predate the advent of modern sound engineering. In her groundbreaking book, Soundscapes of Modernity, cultural historian Emily Thompson explored the ways in which, during the 20th century, sound was, quote, gradually disassociated from space until the relation ceased to exist. In other words, the new field of acoustical engineering tried to eliminate the reverberatory qualities of architecture that used to so directly link sound and place. And in addition, many of us now listen to music or podcasts like this one on headphones, further divorcing the source of sound we hear from our immediate environment. Yeah, and it's a pretty radical contrast with some of the very site-specific sounds I've encountered during my travels. One of the most significant revelations of my time in Europe this year has been how loud industrial machinery can be, even in the era before steam power and electricity. A windmill, like the one we heard in part one at Zonschans in the Netherlands, or even a handloom, can produce a staggering amount of noise. 
But the scale and quality of that industrial noise changes significantly in the 19th century, when both the machines themselves and the buildings that contain them begin to have more metallic components and harder surfaces. A wooden loom in a wooden and stone room, however loud, sounds radically different from a metal loom in a reinforced concrete room. Similarly, a 19th century water-powered rice pounder made from stone and wood sounds very different from a mid-20th century concrete hydroelectric dam. So, much of the 20th century desire to eliminate reverberation and echoes has to do with the ways in which architectural sounds changed during the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century. And with the advent of steam power and eventually electricity, machines got larger and more powerful, and building surfaces became harder and interacted with those machine sounds in new ways. This change in the acoustical qualities of industrial architecture came even more to the fore when the architects of the modern movement began using these industrial materials to design, quote, machines for living in. For example, this Danish critique of the architecture of the Bauhaus cleverly conflates the visual reflections created by all those new hard surfaces with their auditory equivalent. In acoustic terms, the room is like a tin box, each word pounding on the lid, sides, and bottom. The glazed area in itself is too big, and light from the lower panes bounces in vicious reflections off the floor and tables and into the eyes, which cannot shield themselves from light coming from below. In the wake of such critiques, the architectural soundscape of the 20th century became increasingly homogenized and detached from any sense of place. As Emily Thompson puts it, Clear, direct, and non-reverberant, this modern sound was easy to understand, but it had little to say about the places in which it was produced and consumed. This drastic shift points to the fact that somewhere between the late 19th and early 20th century, attitudes about industrial noise and the associated modern spaces where this noise was created changed. Which means, to move on to the second part of our soundscapes equation, the culture of listening must have changed as well. As many scholars of sound and industry have noted, for the 19th century listener, the sound of modern industry was widely regarded as positive and synonymous with technological progress. James Watt, the British inventor of the steam engine, once remarked upon the connection between sound and industry, saying that, I once adjusted the machine so that it made less noise. But the owner cannot sleep when he cannot hear its rage. People seem to join the power of the machine because of the noise. Modest skills are neither recognized by humans nor machines. For what, industrial noise was a signifier of power and productivity. And even though this noise might have been unpleasant or undesirable for those living and working within earshot of factories, mines, and mills, Little was done during the 19th century to mitigate that noise. Environmental historian Peter Coates even likens the expansion of noise to notions of manifest destiny and cultural imperialism. An onward-marching Euro-American civilization 
filled the great auditory void of the wilderness with sonic meaning. To the early 19th century modernist ear, mechanical sounds and the noisy bustle of commerce bespoke prosperity. Quiet was synonymous with indolence, backwardness, and stagnation. For the 19th century advocate of industrial progress, a place where you could hear the grass grow, or only the Cartwright's mallet and the horse's whinny, was not somewhere you wanted to be. In other words, while contemporary listeners might call industrial sounds noise pollution, and find solace in a soundscape of nature uninterrupted by human activity, Listeners of 150 years ago would have had very different associations with those same auditory events. As a result, when we, as contemporary listeners, hear interpretive sound at an industrial heritage site, even if those sounds are historically accurate to the site and space, we are bringing a much different set of cultural expectations and beliefs to our listening experience. In addition to the cultural change in how we listen, There are also physical changes and acoustical changes that happen when industrial spaces are transformed from places of active work into heritage sites. Spaces are renovated to accommodate the flow of visitors, new structures are added, and machinery is cleared away to expand museum space. At the same time, the original architectural fabric may change over time due to weathering and decay. The soundscape of Umberston nitrate mine in Chile, for example, is now typified by rusted sheet metal cladding that makes a very distinctive sound in the wind. At many sites, nature has been allowed to reclaim former industrial landscapes, and birdsong and trees in the wind, like you heard at the Bois de Casier mine in Belgium, have taken the place of active machinery. So, knowing that the physical environment of a working 19th century industrial site and the culture of listening around it are both unrecoverable. How should curators and museum professionals approach the element of interpretive sound at such a site? Furthermore, what can interpretive sound add to an industrial site? Knowing that a complete recreation of historic sound and the historical culture of listening to that sound are lost to the past. To try to answer that question, I want to focus in for a few minutes on the most frequent interpretive sound strategy I've observed across the globe. That is, adding a recording played over loudspeakers of a period-appropriate industrial machine in action. This goes back to the idea of acousmatic sound we talked about in Part 1. That particular category of interpretive sound where the original source of the sound is hidden or disassociated from the listener. Here's an example of this kind of an acousmatic recording being played at a heritage site. The sound you heard just now is from a recording at the Museum of Industry in Ghent of a spinning mule jenny. This is a vast textile machine that spins raw fiber into thread in mass quantities. 
The automatic or self-acting version of this machine was invented in the 1820s. These machines were often operated by children before the eventual introduction of child labor laws. The museum in Ghent has a rare example in its collection of the spinning mule Jenny, which is presented in, as the single artifact in a long, custom-built space. At one end of the darkened room, archival film footage plays, showing child workers using one of these machines. This museum in Ghent is located in a former textile factory, where such a device would have been operated. The interaction between the space, the machine artifact, the film, and the sound creates a complete sensory experience. A few days later, though, I went to the House of European History Museum in Brussels. In the part of the general exhibition devoted to industry, I was surprised to hear the same sound again. But in the second experience, the acousmatic sound of the spinning mule jenny was disconnected from any signification of what actually created that sound. Gazing at industrial artifacts from across Europe, some of which didn't have anything to do with textile manufacture, I realized that the sound was being used metonymically or symbolically. So, in other words, by using this distinct sound in an exhibition meant to encompass the entire European Industrial Revolution, this recording of the spinning mule Jenny was meant to signify a lot more than just a single advancement in textile machinery. It was standing in for broader abstract concepts like mass production, rationalization, and the dehumanization of the factory worker. Now, there's nothing wrong with using sound to evoke a feeling or idea. And many industrial sites use sound in precisely this way. What I think can be problematic, though, is the use of sound in a way that conforms exclusively to visitors' preconceptions. Ideally, a public history experience prompts us to confront the past in a new way, and causes us to examine our entrenched beliefs and maybe revise them. The issue I have with so much acousmatic sound used at industrial heritage sites is that it functions as glorified audio set dressing. Take the MS Maritime Museum in Denmark, for example. This building has gotten a lot of press because it was designed by the famous contemporary Danish architect Bjarke Ingels and cleverly reuses the underground site of a former shipyard. The installation itself presents a highly produced and very general view of Danish maritime culture. The exhibit is soundtracked by old film footage and sound effects. Within the model of museum as entertainment, the richness of the Maritime Museum's soundscape creates atmosphere and enhances the overall museum environment. But I would argue that creating atmosphere is not exactly the same as historical storytelling. Catering to stereotypes of seafaring culture, these sounds effectively perpetuate our preconceptions rather than prompt us to examine them. For that reason, some of the auditory interventions I found most enlightening and rewarding in industrial heritage spaces are those that strive toward art over historical accuracy. Sound installation art broadens the range of a visitor experience in an industrial site, 
and might even inspire us to look closer, in addition to listening closer. Take that formative sound art piece by composer John Cage, 4 minutes and 33 seconds. In the performance of 4 minutes and 33 seconds, which can be executed with any instruments and number of performers, musicians are instructed to not play their instruments for the duration of the piece. What is typically at the forefront of such a performance, that is, live music, drops away, revealing instead the incidental soundscape of the performance hall. A cough, the rustling of a program, the sound of the ventilation system, all these sound events become part of the piece. Other, more recent examples of sound art engage specifically with industrial heritage. For instance, the work entitled, quote, A View of a Landscape by artist Kevin Beasley, currently at the Whitney Museum in New York. In this work, Beasley repurposes a 20th century cotton gin as a kind of musical instrument, employing this industrial machine for its auditory potential rather than its original intended purpose of processing cotton fiber. In doing so, Beasley defamiliarizes this potent historical object, bringing to light issues of space, race, power, and industrialization in the American South. Links to more information and videos of this work can be found as part of the podcast transcript at sah.org. I've encountered sound installations in a variety of contexts in a number of the industrial heritage sites I've visited. For instance, there was this really evocative sound installation by the Belgian artist Francois Curlet as part of a recent solo show called Crisis and Crusoe at Max, the Musée des Arts Contemporains de la Fédération Wallonie-Bruxelles, which is at the Grand Hornu in Belgium. Before we play you the clip, we need to describe the space. Max shares its space with the Grand Hornu an early 19th century Belgian coal mine, which shares its UNESCO listing with the Bois du Casier, the site we discussed in part one. The space itself is pure neoclassical utopianism. In fact, the architect of the Grand Hornu was very directly inspired by the French architect Ledoux's plan for the Royal Salt Works at Arc et If you have no idea what we're talking about, remember that you can see all the visual material by going to sah.org and navigating to the Brooks blog from the homepage. Anyway, so imagine this planned community, which centers around an oval-shaped courtyard. All of the structures are really monumental and quite imposing. And on one side of that oval, the former administration building has been converted into this art museum, Max, and several new, very contemporary-looking structures have been added. So it's in that space where I heard this sound installation piece. You've got some pleasant harp music, and with the occasional bleeding sheep in the background. In this former industrial building, the overall effect upends your expectations of how the space should sound. Hearing this very idyllic and even rural sound collage made me really stop and think about what expectations and assumptions I had brought with me to this site. Rather than just reflecting visitors' preconceptions about industrial spaces back at them, this kind of sound intervention disrupts cliché and stereotype and makes you wonder, 
what do we really know about the landscape of industry? At the end of the day, the element of sound at industrial heritage sites is a conversation between museum professionals and listening audiences. Visitors who are aware that the soundscapes they encounter are not just neutral backdrops, have a much greater chance of appreciating the full nuances of their public history experience. And conversely, museum professionals who use sound as an integral interpretive element that transcends the standard soundtrack of industry have a greater chance of communicating the importance of preserving and interpreting industrial places. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Sundowners. If you enjoyed this and would like to catch up on back episodes, you can search for Sundowners wherever you get your podcast. Script, editing, and producing for this episode by me, with additional editorial assistance from John. All sounds in this podcast were recorded by me in my capacity as the H. Allen Brooks Traveling Fellow, unless otherwise noted. You can see more visual material and read the complete transcript of this episode at sah.org. As always, our theme music is by the Liminianas. Happy trails, listeners.